All right. Well, we will start our Sunday school now, and we will be continuing in our study of the book, I always like to show it to everyone, Councils and Thoughts for the Spiritual Life of Believers by Thomas More. If you would like a copy, we should have some in the uh, bookstore um, once it's open. So um, if you don't have a copy already and are looking for one, I would definitely recommend you pick it up. I was uh, describe. Yes. No copies. Okay. <laughs> are we are we getting refills or? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Well, try to find someone who has a copy and is willing to share, um, <laughs> or or get together maybe and have a, a Bible study or you know that's always a good opportunity to to get together to study. Um, I know it's been in limited print. It's not a, a book that's easy to find either. Um, but maybe put it down on your list of books you're going to try to get your hands on at some point in time. Uh, I say that because it, there's a lot of wisdom in this book, and it's written in a way that the chapters are often short and succinct. You can read a chapter almost like a devotional. Uh, you can probably read most of these chapters in five to ten minutes um, fairly easily. And it's, it's, he's going deep on theological uh, topics, but it's also very easy to read and understand. Like, you know, you can, you can pick it up and it's not like a theological textbook where you're trying to clear your mind and really, you know, uh, think hard. He, he writes it in a way that's very easy to follow. So anyway, I always like to promote the book because I, I do think it's a really good one. And I hope you'll agree. But we'll go ahead and get started here. Um, today, we'll be picking up in the book in part three. So last Sunday, if you remember, uh, Pastor Fry finished us up talking about, uh, or finished us up in part two of the book. And now we will be starting off with the first four chapters of part three of the book. And that's what we'll be covering today. If you recall from the various lessons, um, if you've been here since we started the book, Moore essentially has divided up the parts in this way. He started out in the first part of the book essentially reminding Christians, because this book is written to believers, it's really geared toward believers, he's reminding Christians of their, um, their standing in full salvation before God. He's giving a lot of encouragement in that first section of the book and reminding us to, to take you know, joy and, and happiness in knowing that we have salvation through Christ. That's where he starts. Then as he moves into the second part of the book, he starts talking about, you know, he, he goes from the encouragements, which still are there, to exhortations and in particular, in the second part, he's, he's exhorting the believer to remember their standing in Christ as they look to battle with, uh, go to battle with indwelling sin in their life on a daily basis. So the second part of the book is really focused on that conflict with indwelling sin. And now in the third part of the book, Moore is turning his attention to okay, now we're going to focus on remembering our standing in full salvation in Christ as we seek to walk with Jesus on the daily path. The, t 
title of the third part of the book is Concerning a Life of Faith on the Lord Jesus and Walking in Fellowship with Him in the Daily Path. So that should give you an idea of where we're going as we enter the third part of the book. Interestingly, Moore here has sort of followed a similar uh, structure as to what the Apostle Paul has done in the book of Ephesians. If you recall from the book of Ephesians in the first half of the book, the first three chapters, Paul provides much encouragement to the believer, reminding them of who they are in Christ, that they are you know, part of God's elect, part of God's covenant people, saved by Christ entirely by grace, not of their own works, lest anyone should boast. And then in the second part of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, the way we have it divided up, Paul transitions then from that encouragement to exhortations to the, the audience there. He exhorts them to now live in light of the fact that they are saved, they are redeemed, and part of God's covenant people. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verse 22, Paul exhorts his audience to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then throughout the rest of that book, he's talking about what that looks like, giving specifics. It's, I just found that interesting that Moore seems to be doing something similar to that here, starting out with the encouragement, reminding us who we are in Christ, and then going on to exhort us to live in light of that. So anyway, we'll go ahead and walk through these chapters. In chapter one, what you'll see is it's somewhat of a recap talking about the things that we've, we've just discussed here. He brings us up to speed on what he said before and how this is going to relate to where he's going in, in um, the rest of the third section. Then in chapter 2, he's going to talk about our need to continually be looking to Jesus in order to have a fruitful walk with him on the daily path. In chapter 3, he's going to talk about now that we're looking to Jesus, we need to make sure that we are seeing that every need we have in life is met in him. And then in chapter 4, which we'll spend probably a majority of our time on today, um, if everything goes as planned, uh, he talks about a very important subject in the life of all believers, and that is, you know, he has it titled there, Concerning Sincerity of Heart in Walking Before God and Before Men. So he takes on the topic of sincerity of heart in our Christian walk. All right, so with that, we will start off looking at the first chapter here. As I mentioned before, Moore gives in the first chapter a summary of what he's discussed to date in the book and then ties that into what he's going to talk about in the third section, which is that daily walk with Christ and that looking to Christ for our daily needs. I won't dwell on this too much because we have talked about these things in the past in other Sunday schools, but I still think it's worth at least reading through this excerpt that I have here from more from the book because it's so good. Uh, it's so encouraging to read what he says here, and then it also does help to sort of 
get our minds focused on where we're going. So let's go ahead and read what Moore says here in that first chapter. Moore says, All things are yours and are directed and overruled by the Lord Jesus, specially for your good. All grace is yours here, and all glory is yours hereafter, and all because Christ is yours and you are his. Your trust in him for that salvation you deeply feel your need of is the evidence that not only the salvation, but that all else is yours. So there's that encouragement we talked about. Now he turns to exhortation. Live then in the enjoyment of what is so freely given you of God, and seek increased grace for victory over your evil heart, and for a quiet but decided testimony for Jesus, wherever in providence he has placed you. The power or strength of grace which you need for this is given you in Christ Jesus. He is to you not only the salvation of God, but the power of God, and the power of God to be made use of daily in all daily need. Bring in conscious helplessness all your need to Christ, not merely in a general way, but bring each need distinctly and individually to him as each need arises, asking him to be your help and strength therein. As we talked about, this is great encouragement then also a strong exhortation to remember each day to be walking with Christ, looking to him to help us with all of our daily needs, including what we talked about in the second part of the book in dealing with that ongoing conflict with indwelling sin. Now moving to chapter 2, Moore makes the point that in order for us to have this close and abiding fellowship with Jesus, we need to be constantly looking to Jesus. He uses that phrase over and over, looking to Jesus. Now, we might read this and say, okay, yeah, that's, that's obvious. Clearly, we have to be looking to Jesus to be walking with Jesus on the daily path. But, yes, maybe it's obvious, but how often do we not do that? How many times do we find ourselves in, you know, walking that daily path, overcome with the, the weight of responsibilities that we have in the world or anxieties um, within ourselves, anxieties over the things that we have to do, um, frustrations, uh, all of these things, they, they add up and we, we feel the weight of all of it and we've, we realize that we're not walking rightly with Christ. We realize there's something wrong. But if we were being honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that much of our attention is not on Christ. A lot of our attention and our mental energy is being spent on worldly things, worldly desires, um, worldly responsibilities, even things that aren't necessarily sinful, but that's where our attention is, and our attention is not regularly on Christ. We're not coming to him constantly throughout the day, um, praying to him, thinking upon him, upon, uh, thinking upon the blessings we have in Christ. And so the, the problem is self-made, and, and yet we, we just don't see it. Uh, you know, at least we don't see it often until 
we've already become so overwhelmed uh, that it's, it drives us to see it. So what Moore is saying here, I think, is, yes, it's obvious, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, easy to do or natural to do. It's not something that we naturally do. We have to purposefully and intentionally discipline ourselves to be looking to Christ continually each day. Let's go ahead and read what Moore says here in this excerpt from the chapter. He says, It is from the Lord Jesus in heaven that all grace comes to help believers in time of need. And it is through looking with faith to him in heaven that we are encouraged and strengthened and made joyful in our pilgrimage on earth. The Holy Spirit is especially sent to aid us in thus looking to the Lord Jesus and in living by faith on him. We know that this is true. We know that we ought to be looking to Christ always. But again, it's not something that's natural to us. Our natural tendency is to be thinking about the next thing in the home or at work that needs to be taken care of. Or maybe a, a, a problem that we have to resolve. Something's broken that we have to fix. Or just the many distractions that come into our heads throughout the day. It's not our natural state to continually be looking to Christ, but by God's grace over time and with the aid of the Holy Spirit, this can be true of us, but it's something we have to to discipline ourselves in. In Colossians chapter 3, there in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There we see, straight from God's word, the commandment to have our minds set on the things above. We all agree this is good, we just, we know that we don't do it as faithfully as we should. This is, comes in a part of the book of Colossians where Paul is giving, you know, similar to he, the way he did in Ephesians, he's giving exhortations to the church to live in light of their uh, new nature, the, their regenerated nature. He's reminding them that they have the Holy Spirit and that they ought to, to live like that is true. The problem is, as we all know, there, there are many things that distract us from Christ. And Moore talks about these in his book. If you do happen to be one of the, the uh, lucky ones to have a copy of it or you have the opportunity to read it, I definitely would encourage you to go through the chapter because he has some good examples of things that, you know, he refers to them as things that blind us from looking to Jesus he talks about things like, obviously, you know, worldly desires. That's, that's one that we know. Um, but even discouragement, you know, discouragement in our faith because we see that our, our walk is not as it ought to be. Um, and so we get discouraged, and that causes us to look inward rather than looking to Christ. There are a number of other good ones that he, he points out, but uh, the bottom line is 
this is something that does take work, it takes discipline, and it's something that we ought to be setting ourselves out to do each day in order to better uh, and more faithfully abide in Christ and, and be looking to him each day. We know that if we do that, we will be blessed uh, mightily by you know, um, feeling the, the presence of Christ and, and seeing, you know, being attentive to all of the ways that he's blessing us each day because he is it's simply a matter of are we paying attention or not as I mentioned more initially talks about looking to Christ then he turns to okay now that we're looking to Christ we need to also be making sure that we are seeing all of our needs met in Christ because indeed we know that Christ does meet every need we have But it's important for us to see this because if we aren't seeing this, if we aren't acknowledging all of the blessings that he puts in our lives, that in turn is going to, um, it's going to serve to prevent us from, from looking to him, from feeling that need to look to him. If we're seeing that Christ has blessed us and we're seeing that he is meeting all of our needs, that's going to drive us to look to him all the more, right? We'll see him as the source of every blessing, and so we'll spend more of our day, more of our time, looking to Jesus. We'll go ahead and read what Moore says here. He says, Need is the chief characteristic of our pilgrim path, and it is so that we may the more regard that fullness which is for us in Christ Jesus, or rather, that we may the more regard the Lord Jesus himself, who delights out of his own fullness to give grace for grace and sure help in time of need. Often, his best and most blessed help is not in the exercise of his power to deliver, but in the gift of his grace to bear, not in the removal of tribulation, but in giving joy in the midst thereof. I really appreciated that last statement that Moore included there because that's another good one to keep in mind, especially when we're in those seasons of life where we feel like the the trials and tribulations are stacking one on another and we feel great discouragement. We have to remember that many times the way that Christ is blessing us is not through the removal of trials, but in his faithfulness toward us in the midst of those trials, and in his giving us the strength to, to bear what comes our way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, we read, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is the source of all grace in our lives. In Philippians 4, chapter 19, or verse 19, we read, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every need is met in Christ. It's important for us to read this time and again and remember this and, and hold fast to this. And here, lastly, in chapter 4, 
as I mentioned, we'll spend a little bit more time here in chapter 4. But here more turns to uh, a topic of great seriousness and importance to all believers. And that is the need to maintain sincerity of heart in our daily walk before God and before men. This may feel like somewhat of an abrupt shift from what we've talked about before, but it does make sense why Moore would now turn to the subject of the heart. So previously he's talked about how we, in order for us to enjoy a pleasant and intimate walk with Christ on the daily path, we have to be continually looking to Christ. Our minds need to be focused continually on Christ. But this can only happen when our hearts are filled with a passion and love for Christ. If we would have Christ be the primary object of our attention, then he needs to be the primary object of our affection. And so Moore turns to the heart now as he addresses how we are to walk daily with Christ. Let's go ahead and read what he has to say here, and then we'll talk about it some more. Moore says, It is necessary to be very sincere in all we say concerning our personal spiritual life, and to be careful never to make use of phraseology that would seem to indicate an experience beyond that which we really possess. A free and unthinking use of such phraseology cannot but be injurious to the spiritual life. For it has a tendency not only to promote a merely superficial and sentimental knowledge of spiritual things, but to encourage an artificial experience, a mere counterfeit, by which the conscience becomes eventually so diluted and the spiritual sensibilities of the soul so deadened that there is but little relish for a deeper and truly spiritual heart work. There should be more of watchful heart living before the Lord and sometimes less of lip-living before men. What Moore is addressing here is hypocrisy, essentially. He's addressing the issue of an outward expression of faith in and dependence upon God that is merely a counterfeit, and it's not truly reflective of the condition of our hearts and our actual daily walk with Christ. What it ultimately represents is an elevation of that outward expression of religion or religiosity over and above the actual internal experience that we have of faith and dependence upon Christ. Note that this is similar to what Jesus himself is addressing when he addresses the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 in verses 25 and 26, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. It's an instance of giving more care to external appearances than it is to the actual cleanliness and righteousness of both the internal and the external. Now, lest we think that, you know, we're good in this area, 
I think we could all find instances within our daily walk where perhaps our outward expression of faith doesn't always match what's inside. And certainly we can probably all think of you know, instances in our lives where we've been insincere about things, where we've tried to put on the appearance of having you know, a, a certain opinion or a certain level of knowledge or you know, whatever it may be that wasn't really the case. Now the question might be asked, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone project an outward appearance of faithfulness when inwardly there is a lack of trusting upon God and a lack of faithfulness in our daily walk, a lack of communion in prayer, or uh, a lack of time meditating upon the word and the truths therein? And there is multiple reasons why this could be the case in the life of um, a believer or maybe a professing believer. In some cases, this temptation to put on a false outward appearance, it may arise from genuine desires for the blessings of sanctification, but a lack of desire for fellowship with the God who provides that sanctification. In this case, we may see brothers or sisters in Christ who have been walking with the Lord for years or for decades, and we see in them the fruits of the Spirit, right? We, we see you know, that they have wisdom, that they can speak into various situations, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all of the fruits um, of the Spirit, good discernment, um, a deep knowledge of Scripture, a love for Scripture. Maybe they're uh, very uh, faithful in prayer. We see these things, and uh, we may have actually a, a righteous desire to also share in these fruits ourselves, to be able to demonstrate these fruits ourselves. But the problem is, in, in this type of scenario, that we don't necessarily have the zeal for the Lord to be going to him and uh, walking with him in daily fellowship that gradually, over time and with patience, brings forth these fruits. In other words, we, we see the fruit and we want the fruit, but we don't want to do the work of planting the seeds and watering the plant and nourishing, its, nourishing the plant and patiently trusting in God to provide the growth so that eventually that fruit does come forth. This may be one of the reasons why someone would be tempted to be insincere in this way. They want so badly to show forth these fruits. The problem is they're, they're wanting the blessings of sanctification, but in the process they're missing out on, what, on the true and greater blessing, which is that opportunity to walk with Christ on it on a daily basis, to walk closely with him, to, to cling to him and be praying to him, put, bringing all of our needs and setting them before the cross. And then over time, seeing the Lord's work upon us in conforming us to his image, growing us in a love for him, uh, a knowledge of his word. You know, these, these are the blessings, the true blessings that ultimately result in the fruit of sanctification 
and you know this type of situation that we're talking about one of hypocrisy one of wanting to bear the fruits it's it's one where we're we're missing the true and greater blessings because we just want the blessings of the the fruit the result of sanctification Another reason that someone might fall into the temptation to be insincere is that we're, it's a more sinister one. It's that we maybe see those, you know, fellow believers exhibiting the fruits of sanctification and we, we hold them in high regard. We, you know, look up to them and we see that others do as well and we covet that. We covet that status that they seem to hold that we have, you know, that we see in them. That other people look to them and, um, you know, and uh, you know, look to them for wisdom um, and appreciate them. And, and we want that because of our pride. That is another reason, like I said, a more sinister reason why someone might be led to act in an insincere way because they don't actually want to walk with God, they just want to look good before others. That's one that, you know, I think as as we undergo sanctification, that becomes less and less of an issue, hopefully in the life of the believer, but it's one that we shouldn't ever be so arrogant to think that it couldn't affect us at some point, and we need to be on guard against it. Yep. Okay, the whole book, not just a preview or anything. It's a, okay, that's good. So Philip gave me some good news here. The the this book is actually in public domain. You can Google the title and the author, I believe, and and put PDF at the end of the search, and it will actually pull up the book, and you can uh, get access to it there in public domain. So okay, no no more excuses. Everyone should be able to get it. All right. Thanks, Philip. I uh, appreciate you uh, letting us know that. Um, so, anyway, to sort of to to bring this all together, regardless of the reason for why we might be insincere, it, regardless of what it is, it's it's a sinful and harmful way of living. For one, when we do this, we're breaking the ninth commandment, and we're bearing false witness against ourselves. We're bearing false witness about what is true of our hearts by putting on an outward appearance that is not consistent with what is inside. In addition to that, we're actively deceiving others. And what Moore mentions here, you know, the other risk that we run is that we could actually find ourselves eventually satisfied with the counterfeit satisfied with such a counterfeit type of religion so that we no longer desire and pursue the genuine article, which is certainly harmful and injurious to our spiritual life. Let's continue reading uh, what Moore has to say here. He says, There is something unhealthy in the spiritual life when there is more of religious fervor and more of Christian ardor 
in our converse and in our more public or social doings than there is in our hearts. For the heart should be as a fountain and the outward life as overflowing waters therefrom. It is well then to have more heart culture before the Lord and in the Lord by quiet dealings and heart walking with him in daily life. Again, here we see more emphasizing that religious fervor in our outward lives really should just flow from the religious fervor that we have within our heart, the the zeal that we have for God. What we show externally ought to just flow from what is true of our hearts. It's this sincerity of heart that we should be striving for, not the outward expression, but rather the, the inward faithfulness to God. That that's what we truly should be seeking. Recall from uh, the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, there in verse 8, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Indeed, a pure and sincere heart is a great blessing in the life of the believer. It allows the believer to maintain a unity between the heart and the mind, a unity between the heart and the tongue, a unity between the heart and every part of the being. Anytime we start to divide ourselves so that you know, there's a uh, division between what we're feeling in our hearts versus what we're saying or what we're doing, you know, our, our works, we, we feel that tension and that, you know, often leads to anxiety because we know that there's, there's a disconnect there and it certainly can hinder our spiritual growth. I wanted to read quickly for you uh, from Calvin's commentaries on this particular verse there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Um, listen to what Calvin has to say about this particular verse. He says, Purity of heart is universally acknowledged to be the mother of all virtues. And yet there is hardly one person in a hundred who does not put craftiness in the place of the greatest virtue. Hence those persons are commonly accounted happy whose ingenuity is exercised in the successful practice of deceit, who gain dexterous advantages by indirect means over those with whom they have intercourse. Christ does not at all agree with carnal reason when he pronounces those to be happy who take no delight in cunning, but converse sincerely with men and express nothing by word or look which they do not feel in their heart. Simple people are ridiculed for want of caution and for not looking sharply enough to themselves. But Christ directs them to higher views and bids them consider that if they have not sagacity to deceive in this world, they will enjoy the sight of God in heaven. Notice how, I know I didn't have it on the screen, so you didn't see it there, but I don't know if you caught right there at the beginning. Calvin describes purity of heart as being universally acknowledged to be the mother of all virtues. It's a pretty bold statement. I actually remember when I first read the statement, um, you know, it's funny how there's certain things that you read or that you hear. Maybe you're listening to a sermon or podcast, and, and you always remember where you were and what you were doing when you read it or heard it um, because it just impacts you uh, so much that you, you know, for whatever reason, you, you just retain kind of all those other sensory experiences that were going on when you heard it. But 
I remember the first time I read this, uh, I was reading through the through Calvin's commentaries on the Beatitudes, and I was working in Russia and eating lunch in the little cafeteria in the office there, and you know, eating my lunch, whatever it was. I, I don't remember that much, and uh, was reading through uh, these commentaries on my phone, and I remember I read that statement uh, particularly, and it really took me aback because. That's, I mean, that's pretty bold to say, to call something the mother of all virtues and to say that that is universally acknowledged. That's, that's a pretty big deal. And Calvin doesn't mince words, so you know, for him to say that is a big deal. Um, so I, I remember thinking, how, what does he mean there? You know, how could we see purity of heart, sincerity of heart as being the mother of all virtues? Now, you, know, you or I may or may not agree with Calvin on, on this. It is a very bold statement. But I do think we can you know, reason uh, you know, together to understand why Calvin might come to such a conclusion, why he might be willing to say something like that. I think, in a sense, purity of heart could be described as being the mother of all virtues because if you recall, and we've talked about this before, but in order to perform a righteous act or a virtuous, virtuous act, we have to not only be doing the right thing, but be doing it in the right way and for the right reason. And for something to actually be virtuous, it has to be done for the right reason. Now, if we do anything with an insincere heart, then I don't think we can actually say that we're doing it for the right reason. There's some ulterior motive there. You know, If we're not truly acting out of the conviction of our own heart that this is the right thing to do this is what we should be doing and so I think in this sense Calvin may be on to something in order for any other virtues to exist you have to first have purity of the heart and sincerity of the heart if you don't have that then whatever else you're doing that might be the right thing to do is going to be done for the wrong reason it's going to be done in insincerity and in a lack of conviction. Well, anyway, that was that was my uh, best interpretation at it. But as I mentioned, it's something that really struck me and hit me hard when I was reading it because, uh, you know, I, I I think it is something that we all ought to really um, put a lot of focus on in our lives: speaking sincerely, acting sincerely, making sure that yes, we're following God's commandments, but we're doing that because. We, we truly do love God, and we want to glorify him. Of course, Calvin's not the only one who talks about sincerity of heart. Um, we see all throughout Scripture that uh, sincerity of heart is described in a, as a virtue and certainly as a supreme virtue that is a, a necessary part of the life of the Christian. We'll go ahead and read through just a few examples. In Joshua, in chapter 24, we read this is part of Joshua's sort of final speech to the people of Israel, and he's um, exhorting them to serve the Lord in faithfulness and to remember all that the Lord has done for them, bringing them out of Egypt and to the Promised Land. And he says there, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, here we see that Joshua doesn't just command them to serve the Lord. He says that they ought to serve the Lord in sincerity, not just in a way of lip service or following the traditions that have been handed down to them because that's just what we do. He commands them to serve the Lord in sincerity. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, we see Paul uh, commanding the church there, let love be genuine, sincere. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. There Paul is commanding the members of the church to treat, to love one another with sincerity. Show a sincere and genuine love to one another. Don't be fake with one another. Love each other genuinely. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talks about his ministry and the purpose of his ministry and juxtaposes that against others who would pretend to be serving the Lord. He says, they're starting in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. That's pretty good. That the aim of their charge, reason they're doing what they're doing, the reason they're going forth and preaching the gospel, is obviously for God's glory, but he says here, the aim is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's not looking to spread a fad. He's not looking to spread a political movement that will help people to gain power. He's looking to bring people to faith in the Lord, to a sincere faith in the Lord. Similarly, he makes some comments to this effect in Second Corinthians. There in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. He reiterates this in chapter 2, there in verse 17, where he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It's a good reminder there that Paul provides us that everything we do is in the sight of God, is it not? Therefore, we ought to be sincere because our hypocrisy isn't ever going to fool him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, he exhorts his readers, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Echoing what Paul had said, right, in, in Romans chapter 12. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. Don't just put on an outward appearance of love toward one another. Love each other genuinely. And so as we close here, we'll, we'll turn back to that question that I asked a little bit earlier about why would someone do this? Why would someone act in an insincere manner? And we discussed a couple of the reasons you know, there may be a desire for the fruit of the Spirit, but not a desire to walk with God on the, on the daily path patiently, um, letting Him bring forth the, those fruits in His own good time. Uh, it also may that we covet the admiration of those who, who are demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. But another reason that we may fail to be sincere of heart is a feeling of inadequacy or a fear of embarrassment, a fear of showing others what is truly in our hearts. You know, you might easily say to me, brother, you, you don't want to see what's in my heart. I know what's in there, and you don't want to see that. I don't want to show it to you. And, uh, you know, fair enough. I, I think we all feel that way from time to time. We see the depths of depravity in our own hearts, and so we think, well, how are we supposed to be sincere, show forth what's in our hearts? It's, it's very ugly. But, you know, that's not the right attitude for us to take. Um, you know, rather than just choosing to be insincere or just not share anything, you know, just close ourselves off, what we ought to do is to be humble. To be humble before God. And, and to look to Him to renew our hearts. To look to Him to sanctify us. If we do go to God in humility, we know that this will better prepare our souls to receive his grace. Moore addresses this directly in, in this chapter. He has you know, yet another great passage. He says, The great thing is to be as little children before the Lord. We should never go to the Lord as strong ones, but as weak ones, as very children. It is not strong ones to whom he gives grace, nor rich ones to whom he gives treasure, nor wise ones to whom he increases knowledge. But the weak, the poor, the ignorant are those whom he blesses. Happy is the soul which learns to profit by learning that it has nothing in itself but everything in Christ. Indeed, our humility before God prepares our souls to receive his grace. And that in turn helps us to grow in grace in you know, all of the graces that he blesses his people with, knowledge, obedience, and wisdom. And over time, if we do this, our hearts will be transformed by that grace. And we'll have all the more confidence in our ability to maintain pure and sincere hearts before God and before others.